Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'll say more thank yous in the middle of this speech and launch right in uh, first. Um, one of the things that as journalists we've been writing about uh, is the president's budget. And some of us have been writing and noticing that the entitlements in the budget are scheduled to expand by some reckoning, maybe even 75% over a certain number of years. Um, the expansion of spending is not uh, a partisan thing. The Republicans, I've just been looking at a Republican plan, um, a tax plan that increases spending or actually widens the deficit over years in, in the trillions. So um, there you have it. Every party wants to spend right now. Um, and we, we, we might ask the question, should government spend? And the answer comes in a very broad range. People either say, yes, the government should spend, or yes, the government should spend a lot. Yeah. That is, there's no no. No is not possible. Um, our assumption is that the government cannot not spend. The government has to say yes. So then you want to ask yourself, your economic students, economics professors, observers, right, citizens, what are the premises that underlie this assumption that the government always has to spend and probably more than it did before? Well, the first is that the government has to say yes to spending for an economy to grow. Right? We were talking about this, some of us at dinner. Well, maybe World War II spending got us out of the Great Depression and so on. Or maybe Germany should have spent more and then the Nazis would have come and so on. Okay, that, that's one assumption that we tend to have. And the second is that the U.S. can't get someone who is opposed to spending a naysayer elected. So why even talk about it, right? Or that once a naysayer, a no person, is elected and then he says no or she says no in office, then what happens to that person? He gets de-elected, right? Right. Oh, so even you know, heroes of, of conservatives, Ronald Reagan did not say no in office. Reagan spent more than was spent before when he was president. So my job here at Trinity tonight um, is really to do only one thing: um, say that it's possible for an American leader to say no and to keep saying no and not to hurt the economy. And there was a president of the United States who actually did that. And he wasn't all the way back with Thomas Jefferson or even back with Lincoln or, you know, not a framer, a more modern president, a president who didn't dress so differently from us. That was President Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States. Um, and he even did get elected after he said no in 1924. I'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. Coolidge ranks pretty low in the presidential rankings if you look them up in the encyclopedias, right? Oh, where is he? He's in the bottom half or lower. He doesn't seem to rise. Um, and we don't know much about him. We say, well, he was a sour face, right? Mm -hmm. Even in the cover of my book, He's kind of smiling like this. He didn't have very good teeth, so he hid his, his teeth a bit. It's true. We say uh, he was referred to as the accident of an accident because not a very nice phrase, 
because he came into the presidency after the death of a president from the vice presidency. And some people wondered how he even got to be vice president. Um, and Alice Longworth, the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt, a really different kind of president, um, said, and this was repeated often, that Coolidge looked as though he'd been weaned on a pickle. Okay, obscure, quiet, New England guy. But I found in researching him, because this is the result of research, um, that he was worth knowing about. And the first reason, maybe the main reason he was worth knowing about, the only reason is that he served 67 months from 1923 to 1929. And if you want to know this one thing, is that when he left office after those 67 months, the federal government was actually smaller than when he came in. Mm, how do you do that, right? What, what's that about? That very unusual. I mentioned even Reagan didn't do that, and I lied. There's another important thing to mention about him that I forgot. A second thing, the number two thing about Coolidge, he actually cut tax rates very much. His famous um, top tax rate, which is important to us, was 25%. That's what he achieved. He got taxes down, so the top rate was 25%. Does anyone know uh, Reagan's top rate in this room? 28, right? Where's the, the people who have lived through that? There's some, right? 28. Reagan was very proud. I got it down to 28, right? And right now it's where? In the high 30s, 40s, right? So, so that was considered a, a low rate, um, and it is an achievement. And he also, uh, Coolidge, presided, he would never say ruled, he's a very low-key president, over strong growth. The growth averaged about 4% real terms. Um, very low unemployment, usually below five. So if he was a Scrooge and a forgettable one, he was a Scrooge and a forgettability who, who begat plenty, who gave a lot. He was a paradox. He seemed sour and negative, and he gave the country so much. So I think he's the forgotten president, the hero some of us never knew we had. Uh, even if you don't end up embracing him as your hero, he's worth knowing about. He's worth studying just because... He's so unusual. How he said no, and in fact, if I tell the story right, Warren Harding before him said no too. Um, how Coolidge begat plenty by, by saying no, doing better than a lot of other presidents, it's a very good story. It's part of the story of political process, some of it's economics, but it's also a story of people and their moods, their personality, their temperament, especially presidential temperament. Presidential temperament matters. It takes a minute or two to tell, which is why I'm really grateful to Professor Gunderson, who I'm just getting to know, and your amazing in Shelby Colm Davis Endowment and what you've achieved with that. This very interesting program for people who are interested in enterprise and business, and to Trinity and some of the other people I met, I met tonight, for and you, for this chance to tell you the Coolidge story which begins, um, say, there are a lot of similarities to now, a lot of parallels after trouble. Our trouble, our recent trouble was the financial crisis. Their trouble was World War I. So they're coming out of World War I when Coolidge name is beginning to be known. There was intense disruption after World War I. The most important industry of that period, the equivalent of, say, the Internet, was the railroad. And what happened to the railroad in World War I? Well, the government had nationalized it and then denationalized it. 
so it was in confusion, right? Um, and what is also a corollary to now is that there are some areas in the early 20s where the economy is doing pretty well, where the future looks bright, and one of those areas is called energy. But everybody else might not be doing as well, right? And, well, prices are very high, um, and uh, stores don't always succeed. Stores slow, slow down, right? Even close all the time. There's a veteran who has a store. He sells suits. He's a haberdasher with a friend of his from the Army, right, in Missouri. But the store doesn't survive. Um, and the veteran decides, that, well, maybe he doesn't really believe in the private sector. Look what happened to his commerce. And the name of that veteran is Harry Truman. He remembers this time his whole life as a period when the economy didn't work. Um, what else is going on? Um, well, a lot of groups want something, and that's like now too. Coming out of World War I, there was a lot of suffering in World War I. Anyone who saw World War I was grossed out forever by, by, by war. Um, the budget had risen about many, many times. The deficit had risen, and yet groups wanted things. One trying to get the government to say yes. One was veterans. The veterans who came back from that war were often wounded. They didn't have penicillin then, so the veterans were confronting the prospect of never getting better. Their legs, say, was rotting. In, in that time, wives didn't work, so the whole family was dependent on the recovery of the veteran who was not recovering. Great, right? Um, they wanted what? A pension. It was called a bonus, but it was basically a pension to poor vets. That was a, a reasonable thing to seem to want. They wanted the politicians to say yes to that. And the second group who wanted something, we were talking about this again at dinner, um, were another relatively large group at the time, farmers. Today, farmers are 1% or 2% of the population, right? But how much of the population were they then? A large block of voters, a third. And they, their, their, their commodity prices had gone, were going down or up and down, and they wanted some kind of regular subsidy to smooth things out. They wanted a, a, an agricultural version of an entitlement, too. So that's, that's two groups who want something big from government. And the way this story gets interesting is that in 1920, nonetheless, the Progressive Party, and that's the Republicans, the Forward Party, nominates two guys who are going to campaign on no. Um, the first is an extrovert, ebullient senator, Warren Harding of Ohio. And his partner is sort of the opposite, a tight, quiet governor. That's Coolidge of Massachusetts. And they, th those two Harding Coolidge, they say no entitlements, no spending, cut more. They want to take taxes in one direction, down. They want a saving White House. They know the White House has to model the behavior of the rest of the country. And you remember in this period there was prohibition, right? People were, were told no about alcohol. You can't have prohibition. You can't enforce it if in the White House you drink something more exciting than orange juice, right? So all this is going on. And their logo, the Harding Coolidge logo, was normalcy. And I don't know about you, you probably saw that in the AP history textbook. When I encountered normalcy as the Harding Coolidge logo, I thought that was a terrible logo, a terrible motto. What is it? They want everyone to be normal, right? 
Oh, well, that's not very creative, right? But when I went back and studied what this pair, what that campaign motto meant by normalcy, it, it became interesting because they didn't mean that people had to be normal and cogs like everyone else. What they meant was the environment should optimally be normal so people could start businesses and have fun. That's the kind of thing you study in school. What is the right environment for me to start a firm? Um, they didn't want the environment to be perfect. Nobody gets a perfect environment, but they wanted it to be relatively predictable or not too bad. Um, normalcy was a word that Harding liked. He played around with words. Coolidge was a stickler for English. He didn't really like the word normalcy. It just sounded strange to him. Maybe it, it mixed, I don't know, Latin and Greek, he wondered. Um, so he used another phrase to describe what their campaign wanted. They wanted less economic uncertainty. That sounds familiar too. Um, so what, what second novelty this pair of no-sayers wins, um, the, the, the ebullient guy and the little bookkeeper, that's Coolidge, and they get into office uh, on no and they do say no. Um, maybe some of you at first, maybe some of you saw the special about the Roosevelts recently on television. There was a beautiful Ken Burns special went on and on about Theodore Roosevelt. It was before Coolidge and Franklin Roosevelt. It was after Coolidge and their different parties. Theodore's a Republican. Franklin's a Democrat. But they had one thing in common, the Roosevelts. They loved what? Action. Get action. That's what TR said. And, and as you know, Roosevelt, Franklin said experimentation is good. But not this team. Harding, um, when he won, they used to have the inauguration in, in March, not in January, uh, said this at his inauguration. And I want you to, I'm going to pretend I'm Warren Harding, and I want you to forgive the accent that I attempt, uh, but I want you to listen to what he says. The reason I'm going to pretend is because it is so different from what any candidate of either party would say at his or her inauguration today. Okay, I'm Warren Harding. No altered system will work a miracle. Any wild experiment will only add to confusion. Our best assurance lies in efficient administration of our proven system. Ooh, very conservative, right? Very, like, oh. And Harding, to give him credit, also did say no in office at the beginning. Um, he went down to the Senate. He's a former senator. He got along with the other senators. He was a, a, a wonderfully... Um, friendly guy. He does remind me of President Clinton, by the way. Um, and he went and he got them to pass a, a law they had a hard time agreeing to, the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921. Why was it hard for Congress, the Senate, to, to agree to the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921? Because that law took power away from Congress, from Capitol Hill, and moved that power over to the White House. Um, the Budget and Accounting Act gave the President the ability to sequester. It also gave him a research staff, which he didn't have before, uh, basically what we call the Office of Management and Budget, another na name then, but that's what it was. That law gave Harding a structural advantage in, in saying no that's, that's little described. And Harding did cut the budget back. He did say no to farmers didn't think the federal government really could get in the habit of paying the farmers regular payments. He did cut taxes. 
down into the 50s. They were in the 70% range. He planned a privatization of oil reserves that sounds good, sort of like something you would read if you're a libertarian in Reason magazine, take excess reserves of government with private sector. Um, and what about the veterans? He was very worried about the veterans, but he didn't want to get the government in the habit of paying them a regular payment because that could be too expensive for the government. So he cut a very careful deal with them out of concern. He said, okay, we can't send you a check every month, but we can build you hospitals. We can build you more hospitals than have ever been built for veterans before. This is, again, the forerunner to something we've heard of, the Veterans Administration. So the vets would get not cash payments, but rehab. Still, you want to remember what I said about temperament? Um, Harding was a really complicated man. His party said no. His platform said no. His brain said no. As president, I'm going to say no. But his heart said yes. Harding didn't like to tell people no. So after his first round, he got a little bit tired. And in 1922 and 1923, he kind of, President Harding kind of rested. Prosperity had come and maybe he had cut taxes enough and he, he got tired of keeping up appearances. He liked parties. Remember I said prohibition was on, but his White House didn't in fact honor prohibition. People actually said, and it was in the newspaper, that people went to the Harding White House for quote unquote, food and action. Well, what does that mean, food and, huh? Um, and he liked to appoint his friends. Um, several of these appointments proved fatal. That uh, oil reserve privatization that sounds so worthy, only friends got those deals. So instead of going down um, as some kind of model libertarian experiment, what Harding did with the oil reserves went down as scandal. Teapot dome, right? Whoa. And the veteran story is even worse. I didn't know this till I researched this book. The man who Harding put in charge of the veteran hospitals, Mr. Charles Forbes, was a friend from Ohio days, and he took kickbacks. That was terrible. And the vets didn't get the hospitals, or when they got to the hospitals, the doors weren't open. And the corruption was of such a scale that Mr. Forbes ended up where? Um, in Leavenworth, in the prison, right? Um, and that was Alice Longworth, President T.R.'s daughter, called Harding a slob, and she was right, because why do I say that? Uh, and it's very unkind. Um, it's because if his goal was not to write payments to groups, then he should have done a good job with the hospitals. Because if you're a veteran and the hospitals that are supposed to be built for you are rotten, then your case for a direct check is that much stronger, right? When you're a sloppy president, sometimes you lose in policy terms. And what the heck are you in the White House for but to promulgate your goals? It's not a party for you, right? I, I feel like right now I should have the Harding revisionist come and protect him because I'm being a little hard. I know he'll come next year, uh, so forgive me, but that's, that's the way I set it up. Um, Harding was actually deeply lovable um, and achieved much more, those first things I said, than some allow. And one of his greatest charms was that he knew when he was messing up and he wasn't so arrogant that he, he wouldn't mention it. Um, he said, I, I can take care of my enemies in a fight, but it's my friends, my GD friends who keep me walking the floor at night. 
He didn't realize his friends would betray him in this way. It was terrible. His father was a doctor and told a joke about President Harding um, that the older people in this room may know what I'm talking about and the younger people may not. His father said people should have figured out about Warren Harding and saying yes earlier because if Warren were a girl, he would always be in the family way. Okay. Pause, right? Unfortunately and tragically, Harding died, I think, partly of his own troubles, of these political troubles, in the summer of 1923. And Coolidge is in, the person I wrote the book about Coolidge. Um, and it's the summer of 1923, and you're, you're clever people, right? So you're saying, summer of 1923, August 1923, how long to the presidential election? Well, it's the next year. He's a lame duck, right? Only 14, 15, you're counting the months, right? 15. Um, and that's what a lot of people thought, too, that, that this vice president who automatically is becoming president at this late date isn't going to do much. He, he certainly was far less well-known than Harding, who had been in the Senate and achieved much as a senator. But remember, again, what I said about temperament. So where Harding was divided, the new president, Calvin Coolidge, was all one. He was united. His head said, cut. His party said, cut. And his heart said, cut to. He was uh, an actuary by temperament, an accountant, right? A policeman, that kind of person, an attorney, and a per something very technical and tight. And Coolidge knew that to make his case for small, smaller government, especially after the kind of um, confusion with Harding, that he would have to be very serious about all this. He had to budget. He had to pick a budgeting vice, uh, you know, vice president if he could. He had to pick a very serious budget director to help him make the cuts. He had to make every aspect of his household about cutting. Um, he, Coolidge took this to such an extreme, you just can't even imagine it. Um, well, you know, what do, do presidents call their pets? Usually something fun and light, right? <laughs> Barney, bow, socks, right? Mrs. Beasley, right? Names like that. What do you suppose when the Coolidge's got a gift of twin lion cubs from the mayor of Johannesburg, South Africa? What do you suppose Coolidge called them? He called his lion cubs Tax Reduction and Budget Bureau. <laughs> they got these names because Scrooge wanted to show what he cared about, right? And this was a subtle thing. I don't know. Some of you are interested in tax theory. You thought about tax theory? What? What? You know? What optimal rate? What's, blah, blah, blah. He, he. They were twins, and that was important. Coolidge fed them on steak. They had to weigh even Stephen, right? There wasn't a big fat lion called tax reduction and some little bitty runt called budget bureau. Because Coolidge believed that tax reduction and budgeting had to go together. He wasn't a modern supply sider, so he had to be sure they were always the same. And he did come on like a sour pickle. He was very serious about budgeting. I'm going to read now. I read Harding. Now I'm going to pretend I'm Coolidge. I am for economy, and after that I am for more economy. <laughs> right. It's exhausting. Um, and this one is even uh, more different from what we would hear today. We must have no carelessness in our dealing with public property or the expenditure of public money. Such a condition is characteristic of undeveloped people. 
Woo, shame, right? We don't do that anymore. <laughs> they could see he was scary like a preacher. He didn't say, heck, I'll spend some more, I'll mosey on. And he, um, in this, he's like Lyndon Johnson, actually. actually. Remember, Johnson lost his president. That was John Kennedy. Coolidge lost his president. He really liked Warren Harding. Coolidge vowed to continue the policies that Harding had, had begun to complete Harding's work, quote-unquote, to perfection. It's a high bar, and, and Johnson did that too, if you've ever studied the moment when Johnson began to promulgate policy subsequent to the death of Kennedy. Well, taxes, 58% or 50% or whatever they were, that was still too high because the pair of them had promised taxes would go down. Coolidge wanted to cut the rates some more, and he and Treasury Secretary Mellon labored over legislation. To these two, taxes weren't just some sort of side policy called fiscal. They were a campaign. They were like a war. This was their desert storm, tax cutting. They thought it was very, very important. They wanted to do what we call flatten the schedule so the rates weren't so different, so rich people and poor people paid something closer to the same rate to make great cuts at the top. They thought that would sustain strong growth, the kind that had been sort of absent earlier, as I described. Um, and they made... It, it, Mellon led Coolidge in making a very audacious bet. Mellon thought that if, well, I'll just back up. Mellon was a businessman. He was sort of like, as Warren Buffett is to us now, Mellon was then, everyone admired him. He was the most important titan business leader in America. Mellon had observed from his businesses, one of which involved the railroad, um, that in railroading, the tariff, the, the freight rate mattered. And if you charged... A business too much to use your rail line, well, the business might find another way to transport its goods. And so he had a rule in railroading, charge what the traffic will bear. And if your rate is low enough, well, then sometimes more goods come and you have more business. It's the same, uh, it's another version of what we call the Walmart principle. What does Walmart do? It cuts the price. Oh, does it have less profits? Not always because Walmart makes it up on the volume. Well, Mellon thought that this principle, charging what the traffic will bear, but not more, also could apply to taxes. And if he cut rates, he might get more money, counterintuitive, is that was not less. Well, I told you about Coolidge and the Lions. Coolidge wasn't sure about this, but he went along. Coolidge is a great fan of delegation. That's something the president has to do. And they were quite a team because neither of them spoke much. As taciturn as Coolidge was, Mellon was also taciturn. So it was said the two of them conversed in pauses. Budgeting, this was a, also a great achievement by Coolidge. He didn't just budget, he budgeted ruthlessly. He would impound money. He, um, you know uh, from your own life, either as child or parent, that a parent will say yes more easily if a parent is not prepared, right? Or if you're, as a parent, if you are prepared, it's easier for you, you find you can say no, but you have to be prepared. Coolidge absolutely believed in preparation for his meeting with his children, i.e. the cabinet. And uh, he would study up before each meeting so he would know how to say no to the cabinet. And for my book, we went through the diaries of President Coolidge, his appointment books, and we found that just about every week he met with the budget director before the cabinet meeting so that he would be on top of 
his case of saying no. Meeting with the president every week, nobody meets with the president every week. His family barely meets with the president every week. That was a big allocation of resources, of time, to the business of saying no. Um, the, the, the ferocity with which he and his budget director, whose name was Herbert Mayhew Lord, he was from Maine, went at budgeting would be unfamiliar to us. They would haul all the government departments into a room like this, command performance, right? And then they would tell them, how, ask them how much they had cut. It, it, uh, uh, have you cut enough? Have you cut more than I told you? That would be good. Tell me how much you've cut. And um, the pair of them created a club called the 2% Club for the departments of government that voluntarily cut their budgets 2%. And then you get what? A sticker, right? <laughs> Well, after a while, people couldn't cut anymore. The economy's growing, the country's growing. So, so Coolidge and Lord created another club, the 1% Club, for that department that manages to cut its budget an extra 1%. And then you get what? Another sticker? And after a while, people couldn't even cut 1%, right? So um, remember I said they were from New England, Coolidge from Massachusetts and Vermont, Lord is from Maine. So they created a woodpecker club for that department that pecks away at its budget here and there. <laughs> he also cut the budgets of the future, um, and that's important too, another way, by vetoing. Um, some people wanted higher taxes, Coolidge called higher taxes legalized larceny, and he would veto anything that smelled of higher taxes. He had told his father, and this is a, an unusual line for a politician, I always remember it, he had told his father years before when his father was a state lawmaker in Montpelier and Coolidge was something slightly higher in the general court in Massachusetts, it is better to kill a bad law than pass a good one. Didn't like too many laws. And now, as president, he was ready to kill laws if he thought they were bad on behalf of the people. Harding had vetoed six times. Coolidge vetoed 50. Remember what I said about temperament? Um, you can tell you know, each, each lawmaker, each leader, each executive has a particular device that suits his temperament. What do you suppose Coolidge's favorite kind of veto was? The pocket veto. Why? Why? Because he didn't have to actually deal with the people. He could just uh, wait, wait it out. All right, pocket veto is hard to do because it involves the recess. So you have to get the Congress to pass a law pretty close to recess, usually. And then you don't say anything. And then in the recess, you don't sign it. And it dies. They put it in your pocket. And Coolidge liked the pocket veto because you don't have to write a message when you veto, and it cannot be overridden. And there, Coolidge was always you know, in danger of being overridden. The Congress was strong-willed and didn't always go with him. And um, he liked it very much. He, he, he wasn't just good at the pocket veto. He was a regular Isaac Stern of the pocket veto. Master, he would trick them. Wham! It, 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 would, be, it would be dead. Um, people will study any chief executive for a vulnerable area to get 
and appropriation to get money, right? And Coolidge came from this farming village where our foundation is, the Coolidge Foundation, Plymouth Notch, Vermont, where people are farming, I say quote unquote farming, because later the agriculture department went through Plymouth Notch and determined not a single acre of Plymouth Notch was actually arable. So hilly, so rocky, the way Vermont is. Um, his father, uh, Coolidge's father, started a cheese factory. You can still visit it now. What's a cheese factory? It's an exercise in economic desperation. If you can't get your milk down the mountain, you don't have electricity to keep your milk cool, you've got to get it so it's less perishable, right? You make cheese. So people reckon that he, Coolidge knew what trouble was for farms and that he would fund farms, right? And there's a famous um, dialogue um, when a mendicant, that is a lobbyist, came to the president to ask for a farm subsidy. And again, I'm going to try to be Coolidge for you. Here's the president's reaction. And, and, and count into this the pauses, because part of the way the president spoke had to do with pauses. He does. So what did Coolidge say? Nothing, first of all, right? Silent cow. Finally. Well, I'm not sure I can give you any money. Farmers never have made much money. Pause. Don't suppose they ever will. Pause. Pause. Don't suppose there's much we can do about it. Wow. Very different from what a politician would say today. Coolidge liked to fish in a very primitive way. Herbert Hoover always made fun of him because he couldn't fly fish. He fished with worms, but he did fish. So everyone thought he would sign up for some funding for fisheries. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And there were private areas where Coolidge cut back too. Even the White House, he wasn't going to have drinking in his White House. Um, he, had, he felt he had to demonstrate that he really was for saving in all areas. When the White House housekeeper, Mrs. Jaffray, had a big spread, um, you know, we talk about literal pork now, a big, big spread, and she wanted to show it off to the president. And he said, well, all he said was it looked like an awful lot of ham to him, an awful lot of right, waste. And pretty soon that housekeeper, Mrs. Jaffray, was gone, and we know about this because she was cranky and wrote a tell-all in Cosmopolitan about what a rat think, right? The, the Coolidge, Coolidge was with his White House. Um, other Washingtonians really didn't like Coolidge doing this. Um, you, you think about, um, it's sort of like the MasterCard commercial. Seeing the president on the street, good. Being in a meeting with the president, whatever your party is, really, really good. Being alone with the president at his personal breakfast, eating his sausage and testing his maple syrup, what's that? Priceless, right, for any lobbyist or anyone in Washington. Funny thing happened to Coolidge, though, when he, this president, would invite lawmakers to come to his breakfast, they would say no. Nobody could believe it. It never happened before. And uh, the White House usher, whose name was Ike Hoover, and didn't like the president particularly either. Can you imagine um, what a poor tipper Coolidge was? Um, actually kept a list of the excuses people made rather than come to have breakfast with their president. <laughs> So I'm going to read those excuses to you so you can get a feel for it. Senator Heflin regrets sick, okay? Senator Pittman regrets sick, okay? 
this one is kind of pathetic. Senator Reed of Missouri regrets sick friend. But my absolute favorite is Senator Norris, who wouldn't agree with Coolidge because Norris was a progressive. Senator Norris, colon, unable to locate. <laughs> In their way, Washingtonians um, eventually recognized that this wasn't just nastiness, that there was a reason Coolidge was doing it. He believed that government should be smaller. Um, and uh, one of the journalists who had made a lot of fun of him actually sought you know, had second thoughts and wrote about Coolidge. It was Walter Lippmann. He saw what the White House was doing. I'll read what Lippmann wrote in his analysis of the Coolidge White House. This White House is extremely sensitive to the first symptom of any desire on the part of Congress or of the executive departments to want to do something. The skill with which Mr. Coolidge applies a wet blanket is technically marvelous. There has never been Mr. Coolidge's equal in the art of deflating interest. The naive statesman imagines it is desirable to interest the people in their government that indignation at evil is useful. Mr. Coolidge is more sophisticated. He has discovered the value of diverting attention from the government and with an exquisite subtlety that amounts to genius, he has used dullness and boredom as political device. <laughs> So what about the economy? Did it starve away, neglect it? No. In many, many areas, it blossomed because this holding back of Coolidge, as cruel as it seemed, or at least as miserly, actually created a space where the economy could grow. Well, um, pay began to go up. Unemployment went down. Pay especially went up for skilled people. Um, what else happened? There were many, many patents. The people who study the patenting rate, and I know you do that in your center, are astounded with the rate of patenting in this period because people had hope that things would get better. Um, people knew where taxes were. They were low. Um, everyone had an idea for a business. Often, I know the undergraduates in this room have read The Great Gatsby and maybe you've seen the movie. My students have all seen Gatsby or read it or something. And people tend to think of the 1920s, this era, as one of great divisions where the middle class suffered, right? That's what you get. The middle class suffered in the 20s. You were either the Buchanans or you were a mechanic who, whose wife was stolen away. That's really what the, the Gatsby um, you know, story conveys. But the 20s um, did, th that, but that's a poor representation of the 20s. It's, it's fun to read, but it doesn't quite capture the 20s. The 20s did some important things from the middle class. One of the books I hope you read here at Trinity is Middletown, the Lynn's portrait of a typical American town. It happened to really be Muncie, Indiana. And you can see what people got in the 20s with all this economic harm. Well, they got a car, right? First, they got the Model T. Then later, they got the Model A. They got a radio. They got electricity. That's very important for the housewife, right? Began to cut back on the hours of drudgery. Um, and you know, a lot of you may work in development. I have international development quite a bit. And what I've discovered going overseas, and you probably have too, what defines going from poor to non-poor to working class or middle class? What is the dispositive thing? They do whole studies about this at Tufts. Getting indoor plumbing. 
What did they get in the 1920s in the United States? They got indoor plumbing. It was, I rest my case, it was a great decade in that regard. There were a few sorrows, important sorrows. The farmers especially were, were trouble. I don't, um, but generally the economy did very well and people did very well too because mainly there was this sense of optimism. What other happy uh, takeaways are there from this story? Uh, Scrooge can win elections. Um, voters certainly recognized what Coolidge was about, even if the Washingtonians didn't. In 1924, he had to run for election, remember? He'd just fallen into the office because of the death of Harding. Now he had to run, and uh, there was a strong branch of Republicans, the progressives, who were breaking away, as they had in the time of Theodore Roosevelt, making a progressive party. Um, so there were three parties running. What happens when three parties run for the White House? Who wins? Well, it isn't the Republicans, right? Remember Ross, Perot, and the Republicans had some votes, so Bill Clinton had the plurality, and he won. It was like that, and considered like that in the period. People thought Coolidge would lose this election because the progressives came out of the side of the GOP, but that was not what happened. In fact, Coolidge took an absolute majority, that is to say more than the progressives and the Democrats combined. His saving policies were intensely popular in the United States, and then the Republican Party is a very neurotic party. It's always having nervous breakdowns. It practically had a nervous breakdown when in 1928, Coolidge had decided he wasn't going to run again. They couldn't imagine anyone else winning but Coolidge for them. And they made Herbert Hoover, who was, a, again, temperament, an entirely different kind of man, promise to run on Coolidge policy. Actually, Hoover's policy weren't Coolidge policies. That's another lecture. But he did run Hoover, his Coolidge's successor, on Coolidge policy. Another takeaway, um, this temperament does matter. I hope you study that, whether you can study it in economics in addition and in math in addition to history. I hope you do. Laws matter. The Budget and Accounting Act of 1921 was Harding's baby. It helped Coolidge and Harding. If you ever trace it all the way, and we've at the Coolidge Center we've had a conference about it, it was essentially undone um, by a, the night in, in the aftermath of Watergate when the authority moved a bit over back towards Congress for budgeting with the Congressional Budget Act, which created the CBO. So that power that Harding and Coolidge enjoyed, and actually Roosevelt after them, was lost by the executive later. Um, what else? Uh, federalism matters. Um, Coolidge wasn't just a federalist, by which I mean he cared about states and thought a lot of power ought to be vested there. He was a ferocious Federalist. So why is he cutting back the Washington government? Because he cares about the states. He doesn't want them to be wiped out by Washington. He was such a ferocious Federalist that he always pronounced the United States in plural as are. The United States are going to do this and that. He never, never careful never to say singular. Um, and he had to dedicate a stone in honor of the state of Arizona. And I'll read you what he said, just another example of his... Um, his, uh, his, aggress just his aggressive way of saying this, the United States are inviolate only insofar as Arizona is inviolate, right? He was a big states' rights guy. Um, I think also respect for faith matters. Coolidge's, the Coolidge's were quite pious, 
Um, and they understood that sometimes when government expands, it gets in spheres it shouldn't be in, what he called the area of things of the spirit, that it's impinging upon something, and sometimes that thing is individual autonomy. Um, a fifth, no saying can be good for the economy. It was very good in that period, um, it, and it might be good now. I know that my host wanted me to talk about now. So I'm going to do that now. Is this of any use um, nowadays? And the answer is absolutely. Why? Because nobody then thought that the country would get behind a government that budgeted, but it did. Um, this country can do that too when necessary. It doesn't feel necessary right now to budget because our interest rates are low. But one day in your lifetime, the interest rates may go up. That's what happened in the 70s in the United States. And then all of a sudden, everyone's going to want a politician who can budget. And all the politicians you know will begin to want to budget. Um, oh, even though before they said the Fed will take care of that, it just happens naturally when mortgages move above 10%. It's just the way it is. And why do I know this? Just when the Coolidge book came out, I, it happened that Mrs. Thatcher died, Lady Thatcher. So I had to write an obituary for her, um, and then I had to think about it. The Tory party, her party in England, wasn't, was a party of compassionate conservatism in the 70s, right? For at least for a while in the beginning. They were not a hard, mean party that budgeted. They didn't want any iron ladies, right? They wanted good-looking guys who sold compassion. And then England fell into trouble with the unions, with the economy, and suddenly everyone wanted Margaret Thatcher, the lady who could say no. So there, there are moments in an economy when the country needs a leader who says no, almost no matter what. It's just imperative to find one. So that's why it's important for, for you to know this story, for our politicians to know this story, that, that it's possible to do this, it's possible to win support, it's possible for the economy to get better, and it's something you might want to know about regardless of where you stand politically. At the end of such lectures, um, there, there's another question uh, that goes on along, which is, uh, uh, didn't Coolidge cause the Great Depression? And here, I'll just uh, answer as Coolidge would and say no. But I know you want to get into that in the Q&A. That's fine. And will uh, America ever turn to a Coolidge again, even though we think we couldn't? There, uh, in a lecture about no, I'll conclude by saying, of course, yes. Thank you very much.